Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully? He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Thanks, Joe, for for reading. I'm excited to be here this morning and more excited to open God's Word together. So I want to start by kind of thinking back to when you were a child um, and you really wanted to ask your parents for something. And this wasn't something normal. This wasn't for dinner or for a pencil to use at school. This was something out of the ordinary. Uh, Maybe you were asking for a new toy Um, or to spend the night at a friend's house, or there was a TV show that started before your bedtime but ended after your bedtime, so you wanted to catch that last half hour. Um, Now, if you were smart, you didn't just barge into your parents' room and declare to them what was going to happen. You maybe cleaned your room. Um, You maybe helped with the dishes after dinner that night. Um, You might have been very careful not to talk back. Um, and my personal favorite method when I was a kid, I would typically go in my mom's room um, while she was maybe watching TV or something and sit on her bed and kind of pretend to be interested in whatever she was watching and maybe ask a few questions. Oh, what's that guy doing here? Or go on with that for a little bit and then kind of slowly turn around and say, hey, by the way, I was just wondering. If you were smart, you considered your approach. Now, this may have been selfishly motivated. It probably was pretty selfishly motivated. But either way, you recognize that your parents demanded some level of respect simply because of who they are. So Jesus says in Matthew 7, you might be familiar with the passage, he says, if you earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And I would use Jesus' reasoning here to say that if you, earthly sons and daughters, who are evil, know that you should consider your approach to your earthly parents, then how much more should you consider your approach to your Father who's in heaven? And Psalm 24 um, really gives us a guide in answering that question of how do we approach God? How should we consider our approach when we think about approaching the God of the universe? So before we even begin to consider how to approach God, we need to take a, take a second and consider who we're approaching, consider who God is. And that's exactly what David does in the 24th Psalm. So I'm going to read the first two verses for us once again. David says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So the first truth that we see here is really the truth that we see 
in the first words of the Bible. Um, if you're familiar with Genesis 1, verse 1, says that God created the heavens and the earth. And this is a repeatable truth. You've probably heard that a thousand times, but it's a foundational truth. And it's the foundation that David builds this psalm upon. And now the main point isn't that he is merely creator. That's not the main focus that David is, uh, is giving us here. But it's what him being creator implies. Because he founded it upon the seas, the earth is his. It belongs to him and everything in it. So elsewhere in the Psalms, David proclaims, For you, Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above other gods. So we see God kind of consistently proclaimed throughout the Old Testament as the only true God. And this is, once again, because he created the world. So God rules over you. He rules over the world because he gave you the very brain that you're now using to think about how sovereign he is. So how foolish would it be for us to use that mind which he gave us to think anything otherwise? So David paints this picture for us at the beginning of Psalm 24 of this all-sovereign God who created the world and because of that rules over it. But I don't want us to move on and leave this idea with any room for an image of a God who is cold or, or a hard ruler or unloving in our heads. So if you've been here at Ogletown through the month of December, um, Pastor Curtis preached through Psalm 23, which really paints a picture of God as our shepherd. Says that he's the restorer of our soul. He leads us and guides us into righteousness for his namesake. He comforts us in our times of trouble and need. And goodness and mercy follow us when we dwell in his house. So I want us to see that this is the same God. And it's even the same person, David, writing these two Psalms. He is both sovereign ruler and loving shepherd. He's the all powerful creator of the universe but he comforts us in our time of need. So this is our loving creator God. He created us for his glory. And because we are his, we are fulfilling our purpose as creatures when we praise and glorify him as creator. So we've seen kind of quickly in the first two verses here who we are approaching. This is once again a God who created all things, who sustains all things. And not only that, he, he cares for his creation. So given this, we're going to ask the question, along with David, how then should we approach him? So let's look at the next uh, four verses here to help us with that. David says, or asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And then he answers that question by saying, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, and then he gives us the result of this action. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So now we have kind of a few questions and responses about really access to God, ascending the hill of the Lord, standing in his holy place. But before we jump to these requirements, I, I do want to clarify quickly the, the hill of the Lord that's talked about hill here. Um, so the hill in question is probably the hill of Zion where the temple was built. And while this psalm certainly references 
kind of a lot of temple language, these ritual preparations that priests would have to take when entering the temple. It's not really a specific list of rituals like we might see elsewhere in the Old Testament. Rather, it seems as though David is kind of trying to impress on the reader of this psalm the general requirements that the Lord has for his people. So communing with God, whether it's in the physical temple or whether it's kind of generally approaching him, of course has requirements. And like we said before, just as a child doesn't barge into his parents' room, um, rattling off a list of demands of things that he wants, um, we can't haphazardly approach this all-sovereign God of the universe without considering our approach. So David um, kind of gives three categories of holiness in this passage. And we can really break them down into a personal holiness, a spiritual holiness, and what I would call a social holiness. So to start off with a personal holiness, this is the clean hands and a pure heart that David mentions. And what this really refers to is righteousness, a outward righteousness as well as an inward righteousness. So this is really someone who abstains from sin, who keeps the law of God perfectly. This is one who looks pure on the outside, but not only that, their heart is pure, their motives are pure. So the 15th Psalm is um, a Psalm that kind of parallels the 24th Psalm. And, it, and David describes um, personal holiness like this in Psalm 15. He says, this is a person who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. So certainly God has the ability to not only see what our actions look like, but he has the ability to see into our hearts and see what our motives are. So the next type of holiness that David mentions in this passage is a spiritual holiness. This is where he describes um, this person who desires to stand before God as one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And what this is, is it's the placing of trust in something else. It's, it's worshiping a false god. And this one is less about action. It's less about what you're actually doing. And it's more about where's your trust? What this is saying is that you can't approach God if you don't trust him. It's, it's pretty logical when you break it down to that, that it would be very silly to want to approach a God who you don't even believe in or trust. And whether it's trust in another God or trust in yourself or in another person or in a different philosophy, this is a lifting up of your soul to something that is false, to something that is not true, to something that is not God. And finally, David mentions a social holiness. This is where he talks about one who does not swear deceitfully. So what this is describing is someone who is honest, who is not deceitful. And once again, I think Psalm 15 kind of helps us list out a little more of what David means when he talks about this social holiness. So the 15th Psalm mentions this as someone who does not slander with his tongue, someone who does no evil to his neighbor, who doesn't take up reproach against his friend, who doesn't put out his money at interest, and who doesn't take a bribe against the innocent, who doesn't take advantage of other people. So we won't dive into all of these points specifically, but we do see both in Psalm 24 and Psalm 15 that David highlights a sort of social holiness that God requires. So not only do we need to worry about following the law of God, and not only in that do we need to worry about our intentions and trusting God, God cares about our interactions with one another. 
And this makes sense considering his uh, creator status, right? God created humans in his image, and thus he cares about how his image bearers interact with one another. He cares about how we treat each other. And finally, after kind of listing off all these requirements, we see the result of this behavior. David says, the one who fulfills these requirements receives blessing and righteousness from God. And it's important to note here that the word um, righteousness is really a legal term. I don't think we see the word righteousness quite in that light today. Um, But certainly the readers at this time would have heard this as more of a legal term that implies a ruling by a judge. So one who has properly fulfilled the expectations of justice in a case, in this case properly fulfilling the law of God, would be declared to be righteous. So we see from this that God doesn't just let anyone slide into righteousness and blessing. This isn't something that you stumble into and find yourself, oh, I'm declared righteous by God. No, they must be declared righteous by God by fulfilling the requirements of the law that he has laid out clearly for his people in his word. So, so far, once again, we've been given a picture of an all-powerful creator God who created humankind for his glory and has requirements, requires clean hands, requires a pure heart, requires complete devotion to him above all other gods, and even love for our neighbor in order to approach him. So I think when we, when we read this passage kind of naturally, when we look at these pretty strict requirements to be pure in, in hands and pure in heart, we kind of naturally ask the question, how am I doing? Are you prepared to approach God? So we don't have to enter the temple um, as some of the language in this passage um, might depict. And this church building is not a temple. You didn't have to kind of check in with someone at the door and make sure your hands were clean and your heart was pure. At least I certainly hope you didn't. Um, so, So we're not entering the temple, but we still one day will approach God. In fact, the temple in the New Testament um, is often described as a shadow of the things that are to come, a pattern of the things that are to come. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then elsewhere in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, says it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, comes this standing before God. And remember, you appear alone before God. You aren't kind of judged by other people in your life. You're not, you're not laid against your friends and family to see how you measure up. You're judged by God's standard. You're judged by the standard laid out in uh, the verses we read here in Psalm 24. So we will all approach God. This isn't an option. Um, This isn't something you get to choose. We're not asking this question, um, how to approach God, um, by putting forth the option to approach God or not. It's more of a question of, are you prepared to approach God? And we will be judged by him. So the question is, are we meeting his standards? How are you doing? Are your hands clean? And not only are your hands clean, is your heart pure? Because it's somewhat attainable to live a life that's 
that's pretty clean to those around you, right? You can, you can put forth kind of superficial relationships. Um, you can not let people in too deep, and they can have a great impression of you. You can have the cleanest hands in the world to some people. But to check your motives, to have purity of heart in that, that's a completely different ballgame. That means that every single action you take is firmly rooted in the glorification of God. There's no self-righteousness. There's no building up over your own pride. Um, there's no lust. There's no greed behind your actions. Your actions are completely focused on God. So I tend to think I'm a pretty patient person. Um, I'm mostly even-keeled. I'm not too easily thrown by tough situations. I kind of have the mentality of, all right, put your head down and get through this. It's really not that big of a deal in the long run. Um, that is until I'm driving down Barksdale Road um, near my house, and I turn onto Cashew Mill Road, and in front of me is what you see up here. It's a one-way underpass that the railroad track goes over. Um, and what you're looking at from this view, you're heading east into Newark, um, and on this side, there's no stop signs, there's no traffic light, there's no yield, there's, there's nothing. So if you're driving this way, you just continue straight through. Um, but on the other side, there's a yield. So if I'm approaching this intersection, and there's someone in front of me, and they, for whatever reason, decide to slow down and stop, um, that might be because they're unfamiliar with the intersection, or they're just trying to be nice to people on the other side because it looks like a long line and they've been waiting for a while, if someone stops in front of me as I'm going through this, um, they're probably going to hear the honk of my horn. And that horn is not a quick honk. Um, it's going to stop whenever you start moving and start obeying the law that exists. Now, I can often kind of justify this action by saying, oh, I'm just trying to keep everyone on the road safe um, because I understand the ro rules of the road better than everyone else does. But, you know, Really, is this, is this what's going on in my heart in the moment? Am I thinking of the family in the minivan in front of me and, oh, I just want them to get home safe, so I'm going to honk until they go so they don't get hit? This probably isn't what I'm thinking. And my hands are clean in this situation, right? I'm, I'm following the law. I'm an upright, upstanding citizen. I'm the cop in a blue Prius letting them know that they're breaking the law. But my heart isn't pure. And... It often isn't in these situations. So I would ask, where is your heart impure? Maybe you, like me, want everyone to act how you act because you think what you think is right. And you are now the executor of justice on their life. Or maybe you tend to serve others well, but when they don't serve you back, you become bitter. And maybe that exposes that you're serving them for your own pride's sake rather than to actually serve them. Or maybe you find it easy to kind of read scripture, uh, read good books, grow in your faith, but when it comes time to act that out, you find it difficult to live out the things that you think you're learning. How are you doing? David says here that not only must your actions be pure and your heart be pure, but that your trust must be in God. So this means that the entire course of your life is based firmly upon God and his word. You're not permitted to rely on yourself. You're not permitted to rely on your spouse or your friends or your career or your family or any other crutch that replaces God. I think a place where this kind of most often manifests itself 
um, is in our thoughts and actions in regards to our future. So we all can kind of do the right things to make the best choices for our families, whether those are financial choices or kind of social choices, uh, personal growth or, or spiritual growth choices. And our motives are typically pure in this, right? It's not a bad thing to set your family up for success financially or, or spiritually. We're just trying to do what's best for our family and for our future. But are we putting our trust in God or are we putting our trust in our own plans? When those plans fall apart, are we completely devastated that we've made all the right moves and why didn't it work? Why didn't it work? Or are we trusting in God knowing that his plan for our life is better than one that we could dream up or plan? How are you doing? I think a good evaluator of your heart and your relationship with God may be how you treat those around you. Are you truly and actively caring for those that you see in need? Are you patient and kind to those who have done absolutely nothing to earn your kindness and in fact might have done more to earn your unkindness? Are you taking advantage of people financially, as David says in Psalm 15, or even emotionally taking advantage of them? Are you building people up when you speak to others about them, or are you tearing others down to kind of build up your own pride and make you feel better? How are you doing? So the answer to these questions will probably vary for all of us. Um, Some of us might hear these and be like immediately convicted, Uh, because you might have never thought of some of these before. Um, Some people might hear these and think, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I could could probably do a little better, but I got got most of them figured out. And some people might even think, I got a pretty good handle on this. I'm, I'm doing pretty well at this point in my life. But I think all of us, no matter how highly you might think of yourself, you would have to admit that at some point in your life, because remember, these cover your entire life, past, present, and future, you would have to admit that you've fallen short of some of these demands that God makes. In fact, Romans um, chapter 3 tells us that all have sinned, all of us have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. We've broken his law. And this is what a perfect, holy, sovereign creator God demands. He demands that we keep this law absolutely perfectly. And if we are to approach God, if we are to enter into his presence, then we must be holy and blameless because he is holy and blameless. And all of this, if it lays heavy on your heart, that's because it should. The laws and demands of a perfect God should hit us pretty hard. But as Paul says in Romans 7, this is the purpose of the law. He says that if it wasn't for God's law, then we wouldn't be aware of sin. We wouldn't know our sin. The law is intended to convict us of our sin. So then, we we still have the question, right? We've, We've gotten bad news that we've sinned. So how do we approach God? How can we stand in his holy place with dirty hands, with an impure heart, by lifting up our souls to to idols, to false gods? We're going to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1 to try to answer this question. I'm going to start reading at verse 15 and go through 18. You can follow along up here if you don't have your Bible. Paul says, He, this is speaking about Christ, 
says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So this passage now is speaking of Christ, speaking of this image of the invisible God. And we see um, in this passage kind of the same creation language that we saw in Psalm 24. And this is really important because what it is for us is it's, it's an image of our triune God that we worship. Paul attributes here creation to Christ, um, just as David attributed creation to God. So we see here that Christ, um, through him, all things were created, through him and for him. And not only that, but all things are held together by him. He upholds the universe by the power of his word, is what the writer of Hebrews says. So we see here that Christ is creator. And let's move on to the end of this passage, verses 19 through 23. Paul says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we've looked at the righteous requirements of the law in Psalm 24, and we've placed ourselves up against them, right? We've, we've looked at how we've measured up to the demands that David is giving for us in Psalm 24. And we've seen how we've fallen short. But here in Colossians, we see that God saw it fitting, despite our sin and rebellion, to send his son to bear the weight of all that sin on his shoulders and to die the death that we should have died. And here's the key, here's the answer to our question, to approach God for us on our behalf. And how is Christ able to, as Paul says, present us blameless before him? This is because he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law perfectly in a way that we never could. His hands were clean from the stain of any sin. And not only did he live with clean hands, his heart was pure. As he and the Father are one, everything he does seeks after the will of God. Hebrews 4 describes to us the temptation of Christ. He says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So despite being tempted um, in the desert by Satan to, to bow down to a false god, he refused. He did not lift up his soul to something that was false. He didn't worship an idol. And in terms of loving those who hate him, Christ gave his life for those who despised him, and that includes you and I. Isaiah, the prophet, talks about Jesus and says that he was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And in John 1, this comes to fruition where it says that Christ came to those who were his own. He came to us, but his own did not receive him. We rejected him. But he loved us regardless. He showed love to those who hated him. So because of all this, because Christ perfectly fulfilled the law and bore the wrath of the Father on our behalf, we're declared righteous by God, as David would say. So then we're left with the question, okay, that's all great, but what's required of me? And this is answered in verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So what's required of us? Faith and hope in the gospel, that Christ did this. But before our minds kind of turn to ask, okay, I need to have faith. How do I earn this faith? Let me echo the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that it is by grace that you have been saved. This is through faith. This is not your own doing. This is a gift of God, and it's not by works, so that you can't boast in it. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves except to place our faith in the one who saved us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, weakened by our sinfulness, couldn't do. By sending his son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to his spirit. So if you look at all this and you find yourself guilty under the law this morning, if you asked yourself those questions as to having clean hands, having a pure heart, trusting in God alone, treating your neighbors right, if you found yourself guilty under that this morning, know first of all that this is where we all are. Um, from birth, we all stand guilty of sin and none of us achieves perfection on our own. But know that Christ died to set you free from a life of trying to earn your way into God's favor. And all you need to do is repent of your sin and believe on Christ's finished and perfect work on the cross and you will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of your salvation, as David says. So how should we approach God? We approach God through Christ. And this is the only way that we can approach God. And now that we've seen how we receive blessing and righteousness from God, let's read the final verses of Psalm 24 that really gives us a response to such a great salvation. David says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ancient gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So the discussion of kind of gates and ancient doors here in this passage, um, especially in verse 7, um, has really been subject to many interpretations over the years. But I think our best application for this is found in Luke chapter 21. So if you're familiar with this, this chapter of Luke, this is where Christ is kind of foretelling what will happen in the last days at his second coming. 
He's chronicling these wars. He's chronicling persecution. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about the signs of his second coming. And he ends this dialogue with verse 28, where he says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And this is our posture before this king. Yes, we are told in scripture multiple times to bow down before him in reverence. We see this with this illustration in Revelation many times. But because we have been redeemed and declared righteous, we're also told to straighten up, to lift up our heads, and to welcome in this king of glory. And this is not merely respecting someone famous at a party. Um, This isn't standing up as the bride walks down the aisle at a wedding. This is exalting the king of glory as the one who has graciously redeemed us from sin. And this is the only proper response to such a great gospel. So now as we uh, close out, we're going to sing the song Crown Him with many crowns. And I want us to note especially the final verse of this song. That says, his glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Would you pray with me? Father, we glorify you this morning because you approached us before we ever even considered approaching you. Father, you sent your son to die for us despite our utter rebellion against you and your law. God, when we were at our weakest, when we were unable to approach you, you sent Christ to approach you on our behalf. Father, I thank you for the work of your spirit on our hearts to draw you or draw us to yourself. And Father, I pray that with this great truth in mind, we would be even more compelled to live lives that glorify you and cause others to glorify you. I pray that we, would be, that we would be compelled to live lives of clean hands, pure hearts, pure motives, pure intentions, that we would glorify and lift you up above all other things that we could lift up. Father, give us daily reminders of your goodness to us as we look forward to the day when we will approach you with confidence knowing that we are covered by the blood of Jesus, your son. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.